0: and going right into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as well. Let's pray. Lord, your word is alive and active. We know that it cuts right to the heart, so I pray that our hearts are prepared to hear what you have to say this evening. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. Lord, help us to truly grasp this, understand this, and not only that, but then go apply it. Not only in here, but also in all the classrooms in the back, back, you know, Lord, from the nursery all the way up to uh, the teen group. There, Your blessing upon that as well in Your name, Amen. Numbers eleven, Book of Numbers takes quite a change now here, starting in chapter eleven. We've talked about this little order before, and we're finally getting into that now. For chapters one through ten was about them organizing themselves. So he spent a lot of time on where the camp, where they move, how to take care of the tabernacle. All this detail there in the first 10 chapters. Now in chapter 11, it begins much more of a narrative. And this goes on to chapter 25. So chapters 1 through 10 is they're organized. Chapters 11 through 25 is they're disorganized. And then back in chapter 26, now to the end of the book, they get reorganized. And this is kind of the theme of it. From 11 to 25, this is not good stuff going on here. There's going to be rebellion, rebellion against leadership, rebellion against the priesthood, rebellion about the food, rebellion about the land. They are going to complain again and again and again. In fact, complain or its variations is used nine different times over the next six chapters. Now, aren't you glad that complaining is not a sin? For some reason, we think that, and I don't know how we get around that one. Complaining is... A sin. I don't know how many times I've heard as a pastor, someone call me up and they'll say, Pastor, I don't mean to complain, but there's nothing you can say after that. If it's a complaint, don't say it. Well, I'm not trying to complain. I just, no. We have to realize complaining is a sin. Now, the problem is how do you define complaining? It's hard. I know when I do it, but it's hard for me to define it. I know when in my heart it goes over from just stating facts complaining. I know in my heart where it goes over from me replaying the story to now complaining. I know when I've crossed that line because the Holy Spirit convicts me and says James stop when I hear it from other people it's a little bit harder to discern because sometimes they're not complaining and it sounds like they are and sometimes they are complaining and it sounds like they're just a really great person explaining a situation but remember straightforwardly what Philippians 2.14 says do all things without complaining all means all our job, ministry, church, spouse, kids, do all things without complaining. It just blows my mind when I hear people complain about things. I've heard spouses just complain about their other spouse. And I'm thinking it wasn't an arranged marriage. You chose that person. I hear the kids, and I hear the parents complaining about the kids. I'm thinking you birthed them. Those are yours. I've even had bosses come up to me and complain about the employees they have. And I'm thinking, you hired them. We have this tendency as a society to always find something to complain about and it's never, ever our fault. We're going to spend a chunk of time here at the beginning to understand the seriousness of this. Because if you don't get the seriousness of this idea of complaining, the rest of these chapters aren't going to make a lot of sense. And to be quite honest... God's going to come across as a pretty rough God. Take a look here at Numbers 11. We're going to go right into 1 Corinthians 10 then. Verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Boy, that would really limit complaining, wouldn't it? I mean, all of a sudden, your co-workers start complaining and they're just toasted. I mean, just like that. Church, people start complaining, just toasted. Now, if you just read that, and you're just coming into this Numbers 11 study, and you're saying, this is my first taste of God, you're missing out a whole awful lot. Let me build the case on how we got to Numbers 11, verse 1. And let me build the case on how big of a deal complaining is. Complaining, just keep these two thoughts in the back of your mind. It shows a lack of gratitude, and it shows a lack of faith. That's the main thing you're going to see here with the nation of Israel. A lack of gratitude and a lack of faith. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He's talking about numbers, Exodus, what we're going through. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That's what we're getting to here now in the book of Numbers. Now these things became our examples. Right there. If you ever wonder why we study the Old Testament, it's because of 1 Corinthians 10.6. These things became our examples. Some of it are an example of what to do. Some of it is an example of what not to do. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, as is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Do you realize... Idolatry, verse 7. Sexual morality, verse 8. Testing God, verse 9. Is put in the same breath as complaining, verse 10. If you would go before the body of Christ and say, Hey, let's list the sins that are a really huge deal to the church, the body of Christ. Would you say idolatry? Oh, yes, idolatry. Let's always keep our eyes on the Lord. What about sexual morality? Oh, my goodness. Did you see what they showed on TV the other day? It is awful. It's horrible. I agree. What about complaining? Well... We really let that sin go. And the same breath as God right here, idolatry, sexual morality, testing God, and complaining is all thrown in the same breath to show that the complaining is just as big as deal. Now, the problem is this. You know people. You may work with them. You may live with them. Where their description is, oh, they just kind of do that. They just kind of complain. Guys, it's It's a sin. And if that is a personality trait, if that's the word you want to use, that you carry or I carry, we need to really hit our knees and go to Christ and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for always having something negative to say about my job and my spouse and my kids and the church and the pastor and this and that and the neighbors. It's sin. Verse 11. Now all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonishment upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Once again... This is an example. We need to learn from this. It is made very clear here in 1 Corinthians 10 that complaining was a problem. Philippians 2.14, complaining was a sin. What exactly were they doing that was so bad? Go with me now to uh, Psalm 78, please. Psalm 78. It's amazing how many psalms stop and do this history of Israel. And it comes back to the same point again about them complaining. God hates complaining. Lack of faith, lack of gratitude on what God has done. Psalm 78. We're going to do two psalms here. Psalm 78 and Psalm 106. Time does not permit us to do the entire psalm I would encourage you to mark those down. Psalm 78, Psalm 106. Go back this week and reread them entirely. You get a great snapshot of hundreds of years of history in Israel. And thus, nice, nice one condensed version. It's kind of like the Reader's Digest version of the history of Israel. Psalm 78, verse 11. They forgot His works and His wonders that He had shown them. They forgot Him. Just keep that in the back of your mind. They forgot what God did. Twelve, Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters stand up like a heap. In the daytime, he also led them with the cloud and all night with the light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in the abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Real quick, I need to stop there. We're going to make a couple references to that this morning is that when they're thirsty, God gave them water in the middle of the desert. Through the rock. Did you catch in Corinthians 10? The rock is a picture of Christ, and we'll get to that when we get to the Gospels later on. But it said in Corinthians, the rock followed them. That's a real neat thing to chew on. I don't know if it was the same rock that literally followed them. That'd be kind of a fascinating thing. I think it's also amazing here in verse 16 streams came out of the rock, it caused the waters to run down like rivers. I've mentioned this to you before, but anytime I thought about God providing water for the Israelites in the wilderness, for some reason I always have in my mind this little junior high drinking fountain. You know what I mean? Like this tiny little thing of water, and you got people lined up with buckets. I don't know. You read this, and it looks like God is saying, in the midst of this camp of two and a half million people, <clears throat> there's these little streams coming down, which makes a lot of sense. You would need a fresh supply of water all the time. You don't just want this one spot where everybody lines up and it looks like, wow, Lord, you just didn't provide water like you provided a whole irrigation system. And if that seems like that's almost unbelievable, just go back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is not that big a deal to him. 17. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. They tested God in their heart. Look look at their sin. They forgot His works. They rebelled against Him. Now 18, tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. They rebelled, and they were testing God. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, He struck the rock so that the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide meat for His people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob and anger also came up against Israel. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Let 22 sink in there. They did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna on them to eat. We'll get that tonight. And gave them the bread of heaven. What a description of manna. Men ate angels food and sent them food to the full. Please remember these verses. He's provided water, streams of water, gushing water. He's provided bread, bread, verse 25, that is angels' food. 25, that fed them to the full, to the full. 26, he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power, he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like dust. We won't get that tonight, we'll get to that next week. Feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. They ate and were filled. For he gave them their own desire, for they were not deprived of their craving. But while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choicemen of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. You see lack of faith and you see lack of gratitude. Okay. Lack of faith, lack of gratitude. One more here, and then we're going to get back to Numbers. Psalm 106 now, please. Psalm 106. 106. Psalm 106, once again, is a wonderful history of the book of Numbers. Uh, we're going to jump around a little in this one. Look at verse 6. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies. They forgot. But rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, verse 8, he saved them for his name's sake. That just shows God's mercy right there. Jump ahead to 19, same chapter. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior. There's that word again. Forgot. Who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. Once again, lack of faith. But complained in their tents. See, when we complain, we won't do it publicly. Be in the quietness of our bedroom. Be through a text message that no one reads. Be just me and my spouse, and no one else will ever hear. Or sometimes it's just me in my own head with a smile on my face. They complained in their tents. God still knew, 25, and they did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations, and to scatter them in the lands. (sighs) Maybe to the point of overkill, let me make sure you understand and grasp the concept here of how big of a deal complaining is. These passages really hit me and really started hitting me a couple years ago. And I reached the point of saying, Lord, I never want to forget what you've done. I I never want to forget. I have these moments when I'm reading through my devotions and I go through a psalm every day. And if I get to one of those where it says, I will declare your marvelous works, I'll remember your marvelous works. I always stop and and I go back as far as I can to my mind. And I think, what was I doing last year at this time? What did you get me through? What did you get me through two years ago? And I'll go back five, six years. And I can remember back in certain seasons, like in 2014, 2015, some of these things the church was going through and it was the end of the world. I look back now, it's like, Lord, you got me through it. God got me through something a couple years ago that was just huge. And I keep reading these verses and I tell myself, never forget that, James. And it's like, how can you forget that? It's like, but that's what they did. This is the group that saw the Red Sea. They saw that. They saw the plagues. And they forgot. And when it says they forgot, it's like, oh, like we don't remember. No, they didn't let it impact them. And, and I don't want to get to that point where I, it's like, oh, yeah, Lord, I, I, I forgot you did that. It's a dangerous thing. And I also don't want to get to the point, if I truly believe in the sovereignty of God, if the day doesn't go the way I want the day to go, then why am I complaining? God's sovereign. God's sovereign. I read one time at a pastor that this is what he likes to do. He gets up in the morning, spends a lot of time in prayer seeking the Lord, and he gets out his list of what he feels is laid on his heart that he's supposed to do today and people he's supposed to contact. And he takes that list, he prays over that list, and he crumples it up and throws it away. He says, God, you're sovereign. I saw another pastor one time say that every day he keeps on his desk at church a completely blank piece of paper. Just to remind him that that's his day. It's whatever the Lord wants we got to be careful about that because when do we complain? We complain when we have an agenda, when we have a plan, when there's something we want to do and it doesn't go the way we want. And so therefore, we're upset and we're bothered. And yet the sovereignty of God is saying, I got this. So, yeah, you battling some sickness right now? I'm going to use that for good. Dad, that flat tire, I'll use it for good. Work didn't go the way you wanted. You really wanted to get it out at 4 o'clock. You got it out at 6 o'clock. I'm still sovereign over that. Why complain? And the nation of Israel here, this is what they struggled with. So, back now to Numbers 11. Keep your hand there in Numbers 11. I'm going to read one more time verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. For the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned down among them and consumed some on the outskirts of the camp. Keep your hand here in Numbers 11. Jump back to Exodus 15 real quick. Before you live in this fear now of forgetting God and complaining and getting hit with lightning, understand the book of Exodus, God's grace. So they crossed the Red Sea, Exodus 15, follow along with me. And verse 22, it says, Now Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained... Against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Okay, here we go. Right? First judgment. So they cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast in the waters, the waters were made sweet. Then he made a statute and ordinance for them. And there he tested them. What? No judgment? Yeah, no judgment. Look, it says in verse 25. Hey, I'm going to test you guys. 26, he said, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals, Jehovah Rapha. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there by the waters. They complained, no judgment. God says, I'm allowing this as a test. Jump ahead to chapter 16, please. Verse 1. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Okay, now we're going to finally get to judgment. Three, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, and we sat by the pots of the meat, and we ate bread to the full. Okay, they forgot they were slaves. For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain fire down. No, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, and I may test them. Test again, whether they'll walk in my law or not. So no judgment. Two complaints, no judgment. Two times of testing. And so now we get this amazing manna, which we're going to get into more in Numbers. Jump ahead to 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Now we're going to get to judgment. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp. And in the morning the dew lay all over the camp. So now he says, you're complaining, and I'm going to give you more food. Now you get Quail. And when the layer of dew lifted, 14, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. It's manna. Manna literally means what is it? That's what the word manna means. So one more. Same chapter. I mean, excuse me, uh, next chapter. 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses, said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to him, Why are you to contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained, number three, against Moses, and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, also take in your hand your rod, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is this the Lord, is the Lord among us or not? The reason I took you there and read all those verses is I wanted to show you the grace and mercy that God had through the entire book of Exodus. He said, You complaining about water? Boom, I'll give you water. Food? I'll give you food. More water? I'll give you more water. No anger in God in Exodus when it comes to this. None. Grace, mercy, and the repetition of of a test. So now, when you get to Numbers chapter 11, and you read Numbers 11 verse 1, unless you understand the sin of complaining, according to the New Testament, unless you understand how it's an example for us, according to Paul, unless you understand how Psalm 78 and Psalm 106 lays out this whole history of what they did wrong, and unless you go back and read Exodus 15, 16, and 17 and see all the times they complained and God did nothing, You're gonna look at Numbers 11 1 and say, This is the problem I have with God. He's just toasting people. Your God is patient and loving and graceful and merciful. And even in judgment, He's merciful. How is He merciful in judgment? First off, it only burned among them in the outskirts of the camp. Now, we just got done studying the first 10 chapters of Numbers. What have we emphasized in the first 10 chapters of Numbers? You want to be as close as you can to the tabernacle. That's the presence of God. I mean, that was the whole goal of those chapters. Like when you march, the tabernacles, everything is about the tabernacle. So this wording here in verse 1, these people that are on the outside of the camp, they are wanting to be on it. They don't want to be close to God. This is a warning shot for everybody else the nation of Israel saying, hey, he's a little more serious now. Because we did the whole complaining thing in Exodus, they wouldn't say that, and he didn't do anything. This is a warning shot. This is taking care of some of the people around the outskirts that didn't want to be close to God. And let's go through the detail here. What were they complaining about in verse 1? We don't know. And I think it's purposely vague. Because if you're like me, When you complain, you justify it. I have a right to complain because I was treated so poorly by this person. I have a right to say this. My service was so bad, I have the right to complain about it. I was taken advantage of so much. I have been through so much. I am the only one struggling physically. I have the right to complain. And I think it's very interesting in verse 1. It's completely vague on what they were complaining about because the details don't matter. We don't know the details. Only thing we know is this they were outside. How did he burn them with fire? We don't know. Even the judgment about it, we don't know a lot of detail. We just know that he did it. Verse 2 Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. And he called the name of the place Taberah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Tabarah means literally burning. God gave them a warning shot. Soak out some of the rabble, it looks like, a little bit. Everybody back in the middle of the camp said, Hey, did you hear what happened? What? You know, Fred on the outside of the camp, he just got toasted. What was he doing? I don't know. I heard he was complaining. About what? I don't know. Makes you stop and think a little bit here. I'm telling you right now, if we'd all get struck with lightning, every time we complain, first off, no one would be here tonight, including myself. Number two, some of you should really move a little farther away from the person you're sitting beside. The reality is this, complaining is a sin. And I've noticed in my life, I will complain, complain, nothing happens, and all of a sudden it gets me. It's Exodus. God in his grace is testing me, saying, okay, James, are you going to let this go? Are you going to get upset about it? Just remember all those passages in Exodus, God's faithfulness and grace and mercy, and testing them. Book of Numbers now? No. Now we have to deal with this sin, and he deals with it very, very harshly. We'll see that now for the next, uh, what is it, next six chapters, really harshly. All right, let's stop there real quick. That's quite the introduction. Yeah, Mark. It's quite possible because we're good, really right? That's quite possible because we're going to get to verse four. The mixed multitude. There's a group of people just following. You know, some of the people that came out of Egypt. We forget this. It says in Exodus 12 that there was a lot of people that came out with them. That could have been foreign slaves that said, "Hey, if you guys are free, we're going to go with you." It could have been Egyptians that were moved by the power of God. It could have been people that were uh, a half mix of half Egyptian, half Jewish. There was this group that came out, and it may have been a group that said, hey, if the door to freedom's there, I'm going to go with it. Numbers is really going to whittle down those who really want to have a relationship with the Lord. And to be quite honest, complaining reveals those who really stop and say, God, I just love you and trust you, and if you've allowed this into my life, then I accept it. But to complain about it shows, Lord, I'm not having the faith and the gratitude there. Yeah, John, to hand up. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's the idea. I would go with it. And the reason I would say that's the reason I would go with it, they were on the outskirts of the camp because they were not, it could have meant that they were not Jews. Now, before you stop thinking, well, that sounds mean. God is judging Jews. It does non-Jews. No, I'm not saying that. It could have been people like Mark was referencing earlier to, people that were just along for the ride. And so they were going to say, hey, you guys get this bread every morning. You guys have these waters flowing through. I'll ride along with you. It could have been something like that. It could have been people that, hey, God said, hey, Tribe of Reuben, you camp here. And they said, I don't really want to. I'm going to go do my own thing. I tell you, there's this really independent flow that we have in this country where God is constantly trying to tell us, you are the body of Christ. You work together as a team. There are no solo island Christians. So these people on the outskirts of the camp were people that purposely chose to be as far away from the tabernacle as possible. So, yeah, Mark. Yeah, wasn't there, there was an example in the New Testament too where after Jesus had fed, you know, the 5,000, 7,000, he confronted some of the people that were following him after one of those who told them that you follow me for basically the food that you can get. Yeah. And after he confronted them with the truth, they left. Yep, I believe that's John 6. And he said to, you know, I'm the bread of life. And they said, this is a hard teaching. And many, says, many disciples left. And then he goes up to his 12 and he says, are you going to leave also? And Peter's got that great response of, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? You know, there always is a group. And let me just read verse 4 because it takes us to the next one. Now the mixed multitude were among them, yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again saying, who will give us meat to eat? There is always going to be a mixed multitude in, in the church. There just always is. Think of all the parables that Jesus gave. You have the tares amongst the wheat. You have the fish and the dragnet. You have all these examples. You know, Paul comes right out in Corinthians and says, judge nothing before the time. Because the reality is we don't know one's heart. Now, you can also go to Matthew chapter 7, where it says there's going to be good fruit and bad fruit, and we can see that. But the reality is there's always going to be a mixed multitude. And I know as a pastor that I see people that come out here, and the reason they come out here is they just like the way it feels. They have acceptance. Um, they like the, just the warmth of the body of Christ. And they like the activities. Are they looking for a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Probably not. You're hopeful that it spurs their heart to something deeper. But the reality is, I found a group that likes me. I found a group that accepted me. I remember years ago, there was somebody who started coming out. And the reason they started coming out, they were a friend of a friend of a friend. And they clicked. And as time went on, there really wasn't that relationship with the Lord. And I started thinking, you know, if the friend of the friend of the friend was Muslim, they would have become a Muslim, probably. They would have become a Mormon. They would have whatever. They were just looking for acceptance. They're not really looking for the creator of the universe. So there always is going to be a mixed multitude that likes to hang out on the outskirts, just do their thing, to get all the blessing and benefits of being part of the body of Christ. And the reality, it's the mixed multitude, verse 4, that sometimes sneak in a little bit more and create some issues. And it's hard to discern that. Look at what they did. They came in in verse 4, and they yielded to intense craving. That's quite the phrase there. Yielded to intense craving. Lusted. Greedy. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I don't know about the last... Two things there. But, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Oh, wow. Let's finish with these points. Careful of your memories of Egypt. Remember how great Egypt was? Oh, I remember Egypt. Remember that? The cucumbers? I remember that. The melons? Yeah. The, oh, man, that was great. Remember the beatings? Remember them trying to kill our little boys? Remember the forced, hey, taking away the straw and still keeping the same quota of bricks? Do you remember being a slave? Nah, but do you remember the cucumbers? As we get farther away from Egypt, I'm using Egypt as a a picture of the world. We have a tendency in our mind to remember how great the world was. Be careful. That's what Satan does. Satan goes in I mean just go back to Genesis chapter 3 when he tells Eve did God really say? It amazes me I have people that have been coming out to church here for years that, that are, are walking with the Lord but all of a sudden if Egypt comes up it's like oh nostalgia Ah, oh, man I remember I used to go to the bars Friday nights oh man that was fun oh sin was fun but it's just a tainted picture, because that's what Satan does and we gotta be careful of that lusting over Egypt you know it says in Psalms how it's better to be a gatekeeper in heaven do you want the feast in hell or the cup of water in heaven what you're going to get for all of eternity just completely utterly dwarfs what this world could offer and this is part of the problem that Christianity has. Because when I go witness to someone, what I'm only offering them is this your sins can be forgiven through Jesus Christ with an inheritance in heaven. What about the here and now? Well, I can give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. I can give you, but the reality is you're living for eternity. I'm telling you right now, the world can outfund Christianity any moment of the day in here in this, in this world. Even Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin. And I know that bothers some people, but the reality is the world can throw so much fun. And church does itself a problem when it tries to outfund the world. That's not our calling. It is 10 till 8 on a February cold evening with sickness going around the community. My goal tonight was not to say, hey, I hope you guys have the most fun possible. Let's make balloon animals. No, that's not my goal. My goal is to say we're going to teach in Numbers 11 about not complaining because it's a sin. You can't outfund the world, and it's not my job to try to outfund the world because really that fun of the world comes back like a snake and it bites. I remember Greg Laurie saying one time, one of Satan's greatest ploys is to give you a free sample hoping you come back for more. Just be careful of remembering the world. Just be careful remembering your past. Be careful sitting there daydreaming about what it used to be like. I told you earlier, I like to go back in my mind and say, wow, what did the Lord get me out of six years ago, five years ago, four years ago? You know what else I do? When I have this moment of woe is me, I stop and remind myself, how bad was it five years ago? Oh, that's right. Oh, they were upset at this. Oh, yeah, they were upset at that. Oh, yep, they were leaving. Yep, this. I really do believe in all sincerity, whatever season I'm in is the best season God has for me. And I just trust that. And I try to be very careful about not going back and idolizing the world. I'll go back and praise God for what He's done. That's biblical. But to go back and dream about Egypt, nothing good's going to come out of that, folks. Nothing good's going to come out of that. What else do we see? We've already kind of mentioned this a little earlier. Be careful of the mixed multitude. Be careful. Pray for discernment to be able to stop and realize these people aren't as deep in Christ as they make themselves out to be. Be careful of that fringed, outskirt people that have an air of spirituality. But there's not a depth in the Lord. They're in every church. They're in every Bible study. They're in every group. Now, we're not called to take up stones and drive them away. We're called to represent Jesus Christ and always say and do. And the reality is sometimes we don't know who's in the mixed multitude. We just don't. Because the reality is... The Lord said they're going to come in. You're not going to be able to separate them. It's not our job to separate them. The Lord does a pretty good job of that here in Numbers chapter 11. But it is our job to say they are there. Just because, and I know you guys know this. I know you know this. Just because someone comes to church doesn't make them a Christian. Just because they read, it doesn't make them Christian. Just because they raise their hands in worship. Just because they pray, none of those things make them a Christian. They could be part of the mixed multitude that likes the feeling of worship. They like the feeling of learning knowledge. They like the feeling of being part of a group and serving and ministering. They like the feeling of it. But they don't really passionately desire to know who Christ is. There's a danger in the mixed multitude. And the last one here. What's the real issue? Verse 6. Now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna Before our eyes. The real issue is discontentment. Same chapter. Jump ahead to uh, verse 20. But for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils. We'll get to this next week. We're talking about the quail now. It becomes loathsome to you. Because you have despised the Lord who is among you. See the real issue is they're despising the Lord. They're rejecting the Lord. I'm just going to throw this out here. I'm willing to bet When you're complaining about something, what you're really complaining about is probably much deeper than what you're just verbally saying. Dawn is so good at that at home for me. If I come home and I get upset over something little, she's like, what's really going on? Because you're not really getting upset over that. And she is right. I I was about to say 99 times out of 100. I think she's right 100 times out of 100. I'm willing to bet that if you're really complaining about something, it's probably a much deeper spiritual issue than what you're saying. And you may stop here and say, no, it's not. I'm just really frustrated at work. Ah, it's deeper. I'm just really frustrated in my marriage right now. No, it's probably deeper. Because they're saying it's about manna. And God comes back in 20 and says, yeah, really the issue is you're rejecting me. Because the complaining, the discontentment is showing a lack of gratitude and a lack of faith. What I want to finish real quick here is let's talk about this manna. Seven. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and it's color like the color of Bedlam, kind of a yellowish color. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans, made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. Manna is absolutely fascinating. It's just, it's just an absolutely fascinating thing, and we don't have time to do a deep study on it. Keep your hand here, go with me to Exodus 16, real quick. There's a spiritual meaning to the manna where Jesus says, I am the bread, I am the manna that God provides for us. There's a practical thing to the manna. You're going to find here in Exodus 16 that they were supposed to go out and collect about two quarts per person. It's about three pounds. Just think this through real quick. You're dealing with two and a half million people. The food supply needed for that many people, it wouldn't have worked. For for them to provide meat, bread, on a constant, regular basis for 40 years in the wilderness? No way. God providing the manna is a miracle of provision. I mean, I remember when we went to Mexico and we went to Mexico for, uh, how long did we go for? I think we went for three weeks. We were gone for three weeks. We, we packed our van with so much food to get us through a few weeks. Imagine 40 years and millions of people. It was just seven of us. And a van There's this idea God's providing. I mean, just do the quick math real quick. If he said to collect about two quarts per person, three pounds per person, and you're dealing with multiple millions of people, you're talking millions of pounds of food. This is absolutely unbelievable here. Exodus 16, we're going to hit this real quick real quick because I just want to hit some of the highlights of this Uh, verse 4 the Lord said to Moses behold I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them remember there's that idea again this is a test will they have faith will they believe that I'm going to take care of them will they be appreciative of it numbers is telling us that they weren't whether they're walking my wall or not five and it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and shall be twice as much as they gather daily see we're back to this testing this faith thing because there's these, those little rules with it that they need to follow. Note, it will take care of all their needs. Verse 12. I've heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them and at twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. This is filling. This is a miraculous food from heaven. It is going to be filling. I remember David Guzik teaching about this one time. And he says, guys, did you read the description? The Bible says it tastes like pastry. Every morning there's donuts just out there for you. Donuts that are nutritious. Just think that through for a second. Forty years of donuts that are nutritious. And what can you do with it? Whatever you want. We read in Numbers, you want to bake it? Bake it. You want to fry it? Fry it. You want to ground it up? Ground it up. This is the most amazing food it is filling. It tastes good. You do no work for it. You just go out and gather it every day. There's no grocery shopping. You don't have to worry about carrying pounds of food with wherever you go. God says it's a test, though, because you have to trust me That's going to be there every single morning. And there's a couple other little things there that we need to make sure that they are uh, being tested on as well, too. Uh, pick it up here a little bit. 17, same chapter. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. And when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. They all had it taken care of. Moses said, and let no one leave any of it till morning. Now, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it till morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. It's a test. You, You know out of two and a half million people, there's gonna be one person that says, I don't know if it's gonna be there tomorrow. Honey, just keep a little bit back. No, faith, trust it's going to be there. 21. So they gathered it every morning and every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot and melted. Diligence now. you got to get up in the morning and get it. God does not reward laziness. Read the book of Proverbs. So if you decide to sleep in and you're going to go gather your man at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going hungry that day. So there's the faith that it's going to be there in the morning. There's the diligence of getting up to gather it. And then, 23, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all the remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded. And it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. See, it's a test. The faith that it will be there the next day. The faith that on the day before the Sabbath you gather twice much and it won't stink. The diligence to go out and say, I'm going to gather it in the morning. The faith that it's going to be there. We know that it's lasted for all the years, 25, excuse me, 35, same chapter. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years. Joshua five twelve is when they stopped until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now I hope you see why, and I know we're late here. Why is God starting to judge? Because he says, I've tested you guys. I've given you opportunities to trust me, to remember me, to realize that be appreciative, have faith, and you guys keep failing the test, and it's time now for judgment to come. If you just jump into Numbers 11, God sure looks harsh. See the full picture of how we got to this point, All right, hey, it is after eight, so we need to get going here. Uh, Would you guys be able to stand with me, please? Lord, help us to walk in faith that you will provide. Help us to walk in the diligence you give us. Lord, help us to walk in a contentment. Lord, help us to let go of all complaining to be thankful and have gratitude for what you've done. Help us, Lord, to be careful of that mixed multitude. Lord, if we're part of the mixed multitude, show us. Lord, we just want to love you and serve you. Thank you for being a good, gracious God you are in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.